Be a little slow, be a little late, just once. You're listening to Walking the Wire, a podcast examining David Simon's groundbreaking series, one episode at a time, with an affectionately critical eye. This show's intended audience has watched the series in its entirety at least once, so consider this your spoiler warning. I'm BZ Douglas, an independent journalist covering police abuse, prosecutorial misconduct, and political corruption in Cleveland and Ohio at large. And I'm Philip Fairbank. I wrote the book Pedogate Primer, The Politics of Pedophilia, and am currently working on a book about Kai the Hitchhiker's wrongful conviction. Every episode, BZ and I will be joined by authors, activists, journalists, ex-dealers, and maybe even an ex-cop or two. Each guest brings authentic and enlightening experiences relating to the world of The Wire. Thanks for listening, and come connect with us at walkingthewirepod.com. You guys remember when David Simon said the N-word on Twitter? <laughs> Only because you pointed it out to me. <laughs> I almost want to say, wait, is there a witch time That's appropriate? That's the other thing, too, yeah, because this is like at well, least I mean, one of a couple times that, yeah. I mean, I mean, in his defense, he's like a cool white guy, you know? <laughs> He's, he's not like a lame white guy like us. Like, like he's, I mean, we, we colonizers can't say it, but like, if you made the wire, like you're allowed to call Sean Hannity, the N word. Yeah. And then dig in your heels when people get mad at you for it. <laughs> yeah. It's been, I don't know how many weeks since we recorded uh, this episode today where, uh, you know, the gloves just come all the way off on David Simon, but uh, none of none of the uh, frustration has dissipated. If anything, it's gone. It's gone deeper with um, just uh, ha- ha- crossing paths with. Uh, wanted to talk about Justine Barron, who uh, has some really uh, antagonistic uh, threads towards Simon, and some really. Um, uh, contrary things to say about the the Sean Suter um, case, especially I mean, as it relates to how we own this city, which we're all interested. We've all now concluded we finished watching that, and so we're all kind of thinking about how that landed. And that's man, busy, busy. The man's beholden to the facts. Okay, <laughs> it would make a better TV show if he showed the murder, but you know he can't do that. He's beholden to the facts. As they're described in the internal review board. By the police. The police said so. They said it themselves. And besides, the CIA investigated itself. They have nothing to do with the crack trade. They already investigated themselves and found themselves innocent. So, I mean, we're not going to trust. After hearing him interviewed by (laughs) D. Watkins, I'm I'm half convinced. I mean, like, like, so I used to believe that Sean Souter was clearly assassinated the day before he was going to testify. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and they on on November twentieth, days after he was killed, they, they they staged a photo op with a particular WBL reporter of them digging in the dirt in that empty lot and finding the bullet that they claimed was the fatal round. I mean, I had a bunch of coworkers who lived in Harlem Park who all swore up and down that they heard six shots, like every witness in the case claimed. And but and d- despite the fact that uh that, that that Souter's gun only fired three bullets, and as Justine has pointed out, that that bullets can't actually be matched to a Glock, uh, I think we have to take the police at their word that he was killed with his own gun. And you know, as David Simons pointed out, if you if you're the police. Why would you kill somebody with with their own gun? You have plenty of guns, mm-hmm. and also like that, you know that there was there was matter. There was like DNA, brain matter, whatever found inside the guy's cuff, and he was holding his own radio when he fell. and And I know, like, like like you and me, like we're we're not forensic investigators, <laughs> but but David Simon is a Renaissance man. You know, he, he's he's a police writer, he's a showrunner, he, he's a labor history expert, and now he's also a forensic investigator. Well, you, know, you know, you should know something about me. Yeah. I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> oh, yeah? And, and in that, you know, I have had to go over, uh, in Ohio, the equivalent of the IRB would be the BCI. They're the ones who investigate police shootings. And, and you know, I've read those reports and I just don't – I don't agree with their conclusions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just not – that's why, you know, I have as many, like, you know, followers and subscribers as I do and why I'm regarded as I am as a journalist because I, I just, you know – I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to like, you know, yield to the, the expertise of the police department's investigative units. Especially I mean, look, investigating man, as, themselves. <laughs> as, as, as Simon's great fellow debunker, uh, Noam Chomsky once said to a wild eyed conspiracy theorist regarding uh, a, a higher profile assassination. Like, I don't know what this means. You don't know what this means. You know, you are not CSI. You don't have, you know, like you don't know what these things, what, what these th- these details mean, BZ. Like you, you should need to leave these to the, the professionals, you know. I still I mean, can't believe he like, talked to the. I, I find it a little no, suspicious as no, a layman that this that, that the WBAL reporter uh, who who was was granted like privileged access to this mm-hmm. story and was there on site when they discovered the, the, the magic bullet. I, I mean, I find it a little weird that she is married to, to Mosby's third in command at the state's right. attorney's office. And, you know, she, she was the reporter that, that, that was like hand selected. And to, what, what to, are the cops doing? The investigation? Wasn't narrative. he under, wasn't he under indictment at the time as well? Yes. <laughs> like some of the facts, some of the facts of the matter are from a dirty cop. So we are meant to trust a dirty cop in a town full of dirty cops saying, by the way, this is the time we weren't dirty. We didn't do this. Yeah, and and forget the fact that that David Bamenka's behavior, who was not Souter's normal partner, but his partner that day when when he was suicided, you know, like he would I mean, his his behavior has never been accounted for. 
in the official narrative. I mean, he, he walked as Justine's reported, he walked over to the crime scene nearly two minutes before the other, other, the other cops arrived. Uh, but Justin Fenton, the author of the book, uh, we own this city has, has continuously reported, you know, erroneously that, that, that he, he dashed over, um, or I'm sorry, rather reported that he waited for them. But in the, in the video of, of his death, you can clearly see him stop the minivan and run over two minutes before the other cops get there. So I don't know. There's a great photo you, you should include a link to of, of Bamenka like standing in a white suit, hugging commissioner, Kevin Davis. Well, as you can, as you can tell, we're really hot to talk about we own this city. Um, unfortunately, we have, I think, you know, we got six down, 54 ish more episodes to go. Um, this was a fantastic one, Isaac, and I'm excited to keep having you back um, and, and bringing you on. Uh, I know you, you gave this one a listen through because you're like, you know, I got a little drunk at the end. I don't know how I feel about it. How do you feel about it? <laughs> Oh, I feel fine about it. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm gonna continue to to, to get progressively drunker each <laughs> each time I'm, I join you guys. But um, no, but but I I, I think I mean I'm I'm gonna say that I think the only good thing about We Own This City was was John Bernthal's accent. <laughs> I thought he really nailed like a piece of shit white cop from the Middle River. But, uh, but but otherwise, I mean, I, I thought I thought the storytelling was wooden. The the Nicole Steele character was a joke. Um, the 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 ex cop professor I, I forget his name in the show, but he's plainly supposed to be Ed Norris. Um, I I think he was pretty much just like an editorial character. It was like a vessel for for Simon to put his own opinions in his mouth, and I, I was. <laughs> I mean, I I think they the, the way they depicted uh, the the uprising beginning at Mondawmin Mall in I think it was episode four, um, just just you know completely whitewashed how the police started that riot by shutting down transit mm-hmm. at at the transit hub by Mondawmin and attacking the high schoolers. Um, I I have a big political axe to grind with that show. Uh, even though a good friend of mine worked on it as a medic on uh, on set. Well, I don't. Ha- I think none of us as much of an axe to grind as we have with uh, Simon in some of the message of the writing. You know, like the people working on it and the craft that is is attempted to put into it. Um, though I will say, like you know, like you were saying, I was not bowled over by the craft, like the acting of a lot of folks in, in we own the city. And part of that might've been the writing. It just felt like a lot of people weren't characters. They existed to deliver exposition. Like, let me tell you about the state of the city right now, even (laughs) though you know that because we're both two fucking city officials. Let's talk about that in a very odd way. Um, But like, like the Otis character talking about how like my family needed that money that Herschel stole. I did like young moose playing himself. That was pretty good. And I did. Yeah. I like there, there were a lot of moments I did like, but overall um, I think, you know, in, when I was re-listening to this, what, what we nailed down though is like, the wires gestalt 
and that it creates these mythological characters that that don't exist or when you try to look at who their analogs might be they're <laughs> kind of disturbing um like who's training the police and things like that one thing i did like about we own the city at the get-go is they show that it's this you know this cop is uh, uh it's wayne jenkins is delivering a training speech to a whole room full of folks or it's it's a you know it's a mm-hmm. speech on how he polices i think that's the, the first movie. scene and also the last scene of the miniseries right it was mm-hmm. it was good the first time <laughs> sorry like i was like why are they doing this and i get it it's like a bookend thing or whatever and it's the before and after but like that i found that like the the ending like it was all i was already upset though because i was like oh so they're just straight up playing it off like and and despite i don't care what it says about at the end and then it pops up saying you know, some people think that the way we portrayed it is wrong yeah, but you portrayed it like this, and you just put that up on the screen. If I, you know, they, if they I never interviewed Jeremy Eldridge, seconds, who was yeah, that's another thing. Eldridge, who was Sean Suter's attorney, literally like, just I, taking I the he, he got into a shit fight with Simon on Twitter, also mm-hmm. because they never bothered to interview him. They never bothered to interview Suter's widow. I mean, they really just took the internal review board at face value, and like. And I, I think, you know, Simon's explanation for why the medical examiner has still you know, continues to rule it a homicide to this day uh, is that, oh, that, that was political. Well, I, I'm sorry. I think the internal review board ruling it a suicide was more political. Right. I think, you know, it was it was Baltimore's own little Warren Commission right there. And I mean, I, I, I don't know, man. Right this down to the magic bullet. And, and also, I didn't but, realize but, November 20th. This is, this is what I'm even saying like, is that, know, like. Yeah. Like if David Simon could find a way to humanize the Uvalde cops, you know, <laughs> there, there, there's, there, there's no cop like, like, like too dirty that he can't, he can't, oh, show us the, the humanity in their hearts or whatever. And I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, that he doesn't, you know, afford the same generosity to, to people like, uh, like, like Larry Young or Catherine Pugh. But but I, I, I don't think they deserve it. Um, and I, I think that like as as more and more details of, about like the levels of corruption come out, I can just see him like, you know, continually like retconning his take on it and going back and making another mini series yeah. that shows them a little dirtier and then another one that shows them a little dirtier after that. Do you think this you know is the I mean? new the new vein in copaganda? Because, like, you know, in the past five to seven years, I would say that the classic propaganda stuff like, you know, uh, like Law and Order and all those kind of shows, uh, it's grown a little stale. It's a little outdated. So maybe the new propaganda will be this, like, limited hangout. Look, they're kind of bad sometimes, and here's the reason why. And here are uh, all the reasons why it's not a systemic it's, – it's just the drug war, for instance. It's just the drug war. If we got I might offer the, drug the term, war, then then cops would be okay. And I will I will bring up that um I've I've I interviewed like we were talking about um Justine Barron um has a lot of you know contention with how Simon covers things um and she and, and I were talking about his outlook and yeah he's very much internalized the view of like a lot of old school cops and that their claim uh, that 
policing was great and fine. It was doing until the drug war came and smashed everything. The and job the, used to mean something, you know? Yeah. Like, and there's I, that romanticism. David Simon has romanticism all over this. And like back, back, back in the see. day <laughs> in the, in the 1820s, man, we were slave catchers. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? The job used to mean something <laughs> back then. Like, <laughs> You know, I, I would offer that you, you called it copaganda. I, I would I would call it a limited modified cop out, maybe. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and, and, well, embedded, too, in like and we own this city uh, to a degree is that, well, the solution uh, is like, well, the feds would do better. But then they're compromised, too. It's like it's sort of like everything's broken, <laughs> but also not fully looking at like where things are broken. Yeah, I mean, despite his his love for homicide police in particular, I think, you know, I mean, I think Baltimore City was one of the first American cities with police after right. Chicago, I think. Yeah, Boston, I read, Boston, I think, I read I think this was in one a, of the first too. Yeah. A book called Our Enemies in Blue by Christian Williams, which I recommend. But like the, the probably the earliest function of the police was crowd control and traffic control. And, you know, when when the first police forces were formed, they were strike breakers armed with truncheons that were, like, literally set up to, to break, like, mill worker strikes. Um, and, and it's remarkable how little their function has changed <laughs> over the 200 years that they've existed. And how important it is for people to recognize, too, that police unions are a very different thing than your standard labor union. Oh, which... they're fucking mafias. Yeah. You know? Oh, man. Spe- speaking of, of Simon saying stupid shit on Twitter, there was a great moment when he was he was kvetching about, uh, about how his own union, the Writers Guild, was considering letting in other workers who aren't writers. And and, and he said, you know, we, we are not a wobbly style industrial union. We are a craft <laughs> union. It's like, oh, w- w- way to brag about having less bargaining power, you fucking <laughs> dumbass. Well, I think uh, I think we've we've uh, we've added a little bit of uh, icing on top of the cake that's coming for this episode, um, which is just you know very rich and full of lots of uh, Simon. Uh, we need a term for it. <laughs> <laughs> like Simon bashing, Simon sniping, uh, or like you know, <laughs> like you know, like just br- bring him, bringing him down to fucking reality because you know that's there's a lot of things in what we're talking about with labor. You know, you you tell the story of him crossing a picket line to sign a book, to have a book signing. There's a lot of great stuff. Well, um, it was his wife's book signing. It was a lot of yeah, yeah. Um, the details are correct in the episode, not in the intro. That's <laughs> in the intro is not here for that. Um, but yeah, thanks Isaac. And, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, if we had, this one was our, our first early release. We're hoping to do some more early releases, uh, in the future. And also, uh, yeah, we, I think we really might need to take a little side road through, just do a, a, an episode or two, maybe not episode for episode of we own the city, but it might be if Justine's willing to come on and do an episode of the, you know, walk in the wire, uh, I think it would be great to have her on and do um, one oh, specifically absolutely. about We Own This City and the Sean Suter case that she's covering I'm in so such detail that all of us are like, we got to read all this, yeah. these articles she's written. I, I would love to talk to Justine about that. I mean, before I was like, you know, 
before I, I was like really into like parapolitical research when, you know, I, I was just like a budding young leftist in, in Baltimore. Um, you, you know, I mean, Souter's murder is one of the first events that I was suspicious of in real time as it was occurring. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, before I sort of went off the deep end and became suspicious of everything, like, like this is, is one of the, the events that started to like set off my spidey sense about like how wait a minute maybe maybe there's there's an interagency cover-up going on and i think justine's reporting um or even just her poking holes in the official story as it's told by justin fenton and the internal review board has been really invaluable and i'm super excited to have her on phil uh I hope you had a good interview then. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Was, uh, starting late. Sorry about that. Like I said, my 20 minute interview turned into two hours, but um, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the guy, Samuel Clark, you know, police whistleblower. We talked to, uh, uh, we talked for, like I said, a couple hours brought up the Sean Suter case a few times. And, you know, he echoed a lot of the kind of things that, you know, I've, been seeing in the Justin Fenton book that's brought up in the David Simon series, the, the same kind of stuff that Tim Tolka was talking about. And, and, you know, just the wildest stories you can bring up. And this guy is like, yeah, nope, not surprising. It's, it's blood curdling. It's really chilling. But, uh, you know, on the bright side, you know, heck, I'll, uh, uh, as soon as I get that uh, interview edited, you know, I'll uh, send it to y'all on a, a Google Drive length. If, if you think it's uh, worthwhile, we might uh, be able to add it for, uh, you know, patrons or on the Patreon for patron access. Oh, cool. yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. So um, let me just go ahead and introduce uh, today's guest. Uh, he was uh, with us for the uh, intro of episode two with Tim Tolka. Uh, he is Isaac. I don't remember if we're dropping your last name, Isaac, but if we are, why don't you give us that and, uh, or introduce yourself. Just Isaac works fine. What's up guys. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. Yeah. So, um, we, uh, Isaac and I have been, uh, catching up, kind of going over everything we want to talk about with this episode, but like we do with, uh, all of our guests kind of, um, get a sense of what's your relationship to the wire as a, as a whole and, and anything beyond the scope of just this episode we're walking. Do you want to kind of well, go off on about the wire? I, I mean, I have an interesting, uh, you know, r relationship to the show, I guess. Cause I, I, I'm from Baltimore city born and raised and I, uh, was aware of it long before I, I had ever seen an episode of it. Uh, the, Pat Moran casting company did, uh, so I, I went to a public high school, uh, it's also a magnet school called BSA, Baltimore School for the Arts, and they did uh, like casting calls, especially for season four in like all the high school scenes. Oh, cool. um, they they did casting calls at my high school. I I tried out for it once, but I think they only wanted black kids for uh, for season four, obviously, the show. And um, so I I was like I I had teachers that appeared on the wire. Uh, Maria Broom was one of my teachers who who plays Daniels's wife. Like Daniels is kind of like uh you know ambitious like Lady Macbeth kind of wife. Uh -huh. you, you know uh yeah that was one of my high school teachers that uh, was on it and like 
Yeah, so so I, I I knew people, I knew kids that had been extras on it, and I was aware that it was like this big phenomenon that was like about like society in Baltimore City, and had all this commentary on like the social conditions of of, of Baltimore City, and I was, uh, and th- then I saw it, and I was, I remember being like really impressed by it. Uh, I didn't actually watch it while it was on the air because I didn't have HBO. But then when I was about 18, I think I like just binged all five seasons straight through and I fell in love with it. Um, but, but also I think it has to be said that, uh, when, when, so when, when, when we say, when we say all cops are bastards, that includes liberal screenwriters. Okay. <laughs> and like, and like coming in. Nah, listen, <laughs> David Simon is 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 a worthless fucking scumbag, man. Let me tell you. I remember when I was seventeen years old, before I'd even seen his show, and he and his fucking wife Laura Lipman, you know, these when love to make their progressive noises. I remember when they crossed a union picket line at the Sheridan City Center in Baltimore City. Those were that that property was under boycott. The workers were facing a union busting company called Columbia Sussex. They had voted to boycott it. We, we had asked Miss Lipman nicely not to show up to this book signing event because she was crossing a picket line. And then she and her fucking husband, David Simon, did anyway. And I did not forget that kind of thing. So, Wait, so they crossed the picket line just to do a book signing, not like. Yeah, just to do a book signing at this at this hotel property, which you, you know, yeah, I'm I'm glad you're such a fucking friend of the working man making season two of The Wire all about you know Frank Sabaka as this working class hero, but you know what, you're just another fucking bougie screenwriter like all the rest. Of I don't know. I, I, I also think that in the in the shoes of him right there would just mm-hmm. be like you know if I if I was gonna do a book signing and I wanted to show solidarity with the picket fucking have the the book signing out in front of the picket line exactly yeah, don't, yeah, don't exactly. do it don't bring business Come into on. property yeah exactly like, even from a cynical marketing perspective that would be better PR you know yeah, right. also yeah. it would make headlines it would make more headlines because of the you know. Like, I, I don't know. That's just the way I'm seeing it. Like, even if you were just wanting to be jaded, cynical, and get more headlines for your book signing, that would have done it, you know? If you were David Simon or Laura Lipman, that's what you should have done. I agree. But, um, so, so I, I, I had that, that, like, bitter brush with, with, the, with this man before at ever seeing the show and falling in love with it, um, but I also think you now. Now, since then, I, I've I've gone back and I've watched all the David Simon shows. I've seen The Corner. I've seen Homicide: Life on the Street, and I'm now watching We Own This City, which I have some political problems with. But I, I think it's a well done show overall. And I think it's funny that like the the arc of his work has gone from like The Corner, which is like this very like heartfelt portrayal of of like you know drug addicts and like the, the underclass in Baltimore city uh, in, into homicide, which is kind of like this very like, you know, kind of like loving cop worship thing that, you you know, I I mean, it it, it shows you some of like the petty office politics that, that define the, the police department kind of in the same vein as the wire. 
but it, you know, it, it's it's largely like an apology for these people's behavior. And then The Wire, which is like kind of more gritty and realistic, in or like fancies itself to be, but in fact is is like sort of a whitewash of, of how, how corrupt the system actually is, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's why he had to go back and make We Own This City because after the gun trace task force scandal, he was like, holy shit, like I went a little too easy on the BPD. <laughs> yeah. I need to, yeah. um, and yeah. I'm, I'm very, very curious how We Own This City is going to portray uh, the murder of Sean Suter. I think the artistically brave choice would be like, let, let's have Wayne Jenkins order the killing himself or something, or l- let's have uh, Suter's like temporary partner, one-time partner on that day, David Bamenka. Let's have him like shoot him execution style or something. I sort of think they're not going to do that. I, I I suspect they're going to have like like it, it'll it'll be like oh like. Uh, Antonio Brill Shropshire had him killed or something yeah. along these lines. Right. And then the internal re- review board covered it up, not because they're in on the scandal, but because to release the truth would have been embarrassing to Mayor Catherine Pugh. Um, by the way, if, if I were to write a hypothetical season six of The Wire, it would totally be about the rise and fall of Catherine Pugh. Because I mean, the, the rate at which Baltimore goes through mayor is just fucking rules. Like, uh, <laughs> now, she, I, like before, before you do yeah. a hypothetical season uh-huh. of The Wire, which yeah. I'm down for. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, what are do you have a top X? You know, three, five, ten of your beefs with things the Wire um, whitewashes, as you said. I mean, like, or is it a bigger thing of like the Gestalt? I, I think it's a bigger thing of the Gestalt, but but also like I don't think in real life that like these hero cops like McNulty or Kima or whatever actually exist, you know? Right. I, That's I, what I, Tim Tolkien is saying, basically. Yeah. It's yeah. mythic. And, and we I want them. We need those we knew those stories because we crave those it's a myth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And I think like that's that's what's appealing about the show is it it shows like these you know these kind of like hard nosed everyman going up against the system and because they care so much about their job they 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 do you know they do good police work anyway in spite of all the institutional barriers to it and like I I I don't think that is actually true I think. Probably the depiction we see and we own this city is closer to, to reality. Where- I can well, I can tell you f- from my experience. I work one of the sources I'm very close with is a f- former police chief, um, but he has uh, become a whistleblower uh, working with another source of mine, trying to expose uh, failures of like that are rampant across the state of Ohio in departments to take mandated state training like specific training they're supposed to take and so i've talked with him a lot and it's been wild for him for me to talk to him as a radical anarchist who has you know like thinks that we do need to radically reform aka abolish or defund the police um him to just be like you know what you're right and his starting to you know like when the veil gets lifted of someone who's been in the system i think there are decent people in there that don't you know that's there's a lot of ways that like they they keep the good people out of the loop 
or you know they marginalize them they put them in basements <laughs> well it's not just that uh you know you know you mentioned mythology that's a term that samuel clark the whistleblower i was talking to today mentioned the mythology he he referenced that specific phrase multiple times and it is it's keeping up appearances and things and the system is set up against you internal affairs is meant to prevent whistleblowers and leaks not to get rid of bad cops and you'd be better off being a dirty cop than a cop trying to clean up the system because you could end up dead or they'll nitpick you out of they'll nitpick you until you get fired at, for stupid stuff and uh, like he said, it's, you know, there's a genuine physical danger uh, as well as, you know, it's not just your career. Like he said, there's there's a million different ways they can pressure and scare you once you're in there. Like, it, honestly, the way he talked about it, it sounds like Scientology, like it's cult level stuff. Like once you yeah. get in there and you see something bad, it's like you better not have seen that. Or your life will go to ruin. Mm. You will lose your job. You will lose your house. You will maybe lose your life. You know, you will be hounded and targeted. You know, it's it's scary. Well, so here, here's another example. Uh, I really like season two because I know some guys who are longshoremen in in Baltimore. They don't say stevedore, by the way. They say longshoremen, <laughs> but they um. And uh, and a lot of my own background is I I used to be part of Teamsters Local three fifty five. In, That's a in, big little detail to me. Sorry to interrupt you. But, it is like, a big little detail. That fucking wrong. Like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering why they even did that. Is it because of the IBS joke? Like International Brotherhood of Stevedores is like irritable bowel syndrome. I don't know. Maybe, but it's like, um, but it, it's like. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I come from a union family, and I was a teamster for a long time in Baltimore, and like the. Uh, you know, I I think the depiction of uh, of of like Frank Sabatka as this kind of like embattled like working man, you know, friend of the working class, or whatever, is like you know who gets roped into like doing this drug smuggling dirt, like against his better judgment because he has to to you know for the union to survive. I I think it's like a, a total fairy tale i think like a lot of these characters are like you know the people who were corrupt in unions like that were not doing it for honorable reasons no they're not doing it for honorable reasons you know like, like dennis taylor who runs the teamsters 355 in baltimore he's not an honorable man you know when when, when fucking when ken hall got caught embezzling money from the union it, it, it wasn't for for like noble reasons and there there have been scan i mean the ila local 333 is a fucking mobbed up union too i mean there's look there, there's two longshoremen's unions there's ilwu on the west coast which is pretty left wing and then there's the ila on on the east coast which is anything but and i i don't think like the the top union bureaucrats like skimming money off the top are these like noble frank sabatka types i think mm -hmm. kind of david simon's downfall is that he makes these uh is he, he's such a humanist that he's he, a romantic yeah he, he, right, he, right. he has, he has to humanize each of these of people and add like nuance <laughs> and nobility yeah. to them where like like that that just just is not the case in the real world i think or is it was it if i wonder to what degree it's a thing where did he just get close to the wrong sources and like like oh i'm seeing i'm just gonna see the side like see the side of it from like these corrupt 
cops or, or, or just cops on the beat or this or that and and internalized the justifications they fed him. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you can find reasons to like a lot of bad people. (laughs) I haven't haven't had that yet, but I mean, I'll tell you, like anyone I'm working a story with that's my source, I I get fucking close to them. You have to. Like they're telling you about like the the biggest tragedy in their life and they're, they're hoping that you'll take it seriously and tell it. Um, so if my sort, my sources have never been though, with the exception of like whistleblowers, like that police chief I'm talking about, Sure, I've never had someone that's in the system that is in any way, like I'm hearing them try to make me see a sympathetic side to how it's grinding people's fucking lives up. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. And I think, um, I mean, I, I think a lot of what, what the wire showcases about Baltimore, like rings true, you know, like, uh. You know, the, um, I mean, I, I, it's, it's common knowledge. I think that Tommy Carcetti is supposed to be Martin O'Malley, but what th- there's other characters who were inspired by real life politicians too. I think like Clay Davis is kind of a composite character of three different mm-hmm. politicians. Uh, <laughs> most notably uh, state Senator Larry Young, who got, you know, was, was caught taking bribes or whatever. But I, I you know, the, um, the city council president who's kind of like nipping at Carcetti's heels in season three or whatever. Well, the she, black woman, yeah, yeah she, she was inspired by Sheila Dixon who was city council president and then later went on to become mayor and eventually resigned in disgrace because she was accepting from a real estate mogul. Uh, she was accepting gift cards as a bribe that were intended for an orphanage. And she was like stealing Holy from the orphans, <laughs> which and, and and then and like so she she resigned like many years ago, and then like I voted for this woman again after the scandal in, in twenty sixteen because she was the most left wing candidate on the ballot in twenty sixteen. You know, you know? I'm going to take a very controversial. You know, this might be a hot take, but in general, yeah, I'm sure there's exceptions, but in general. I've got to say, stealing from widows and orphans is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, there's exceptions to every rule, but as a general rule, still coming out with the controversial takes. I know, yeah. I know, not everybody's going to agree with me, but <laughs> yeah. But, but so, so then her her successor, well, Stephanie Rawlings Blake, I guess, resigned as you see, and we own this city over the mishandling of the Freddie Gray uprising, but then. Uh, but then her successor, Catherine Pugh, my God, like David, if David Simon makes another Baltimore show, it's got to be like a fucking like biopic about the rise and fall of Catherine Pugh. This lady won in 2016 by like, because like one of the reasons she won the election is she would like pull school buses up to methadone clinics and she, she would like get like the addicts in the methadone clinics to, to go out and campaign for her. Some of them would be paid fifty dollars for the day. Some of them would would just be paid like like a chicken box, and then and a lot of people were promised both, and then only received the chicken box. And oh, th- there was like a so the day after election day, there was like a little mini riot outside her campaign headquarters. Oh my god! Where, where where like 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 some some of these recovering addicts showed up and like broke the windows of her campaign headquarters because they hadn't been paid. Um, wow! And so, but before getting elected mayor, she was uh, she was an, a children's book author by trade. She wrote uh, she wrote a series of, of children's books, illustrated children's books called Healthy Holly, 
which were about eating your vegetables and stuff. And, uh, and then she got the University of Maryland Medical Center to buy something like 1 million copies of her children's book as part of this like pay to play thing to get, you, you know, to, to get tax breaks or whatever. And they, they were caught with like Very close to a million woman. copies of this book in one of their warehouses. And then <laughs> like her attorney announced she was sick and she vanished for like a month. And then when she finally resurfaced to, to give her resignation speech, she, she was very contrite. She apologized for her, her misdeeds. And then she fucking announced her new line of healthy Holly children's clothes that were coming out. It was like, like it, it's so fucking I saw good. This. My friend I likes to say, it's like if Oprah was from Baltimore. That's what, <laughs> you know, that's who Captain Pew is. Like, anyway, like. So, oh so David Simon, if if you're listening to this, uh, somehow, like, first of all, fuck you. Second of all, <laughs> make a Catherine Pugh show for us. <laughs> well, I'm sure. I'm sure after the flame war on Twitter, he's he's our biggest fan. So, uh, well, and it was. Oh yeah, I saw BZ got into it so, with him. You know what? We haven't. You know, I alluded to this in the intro for the episode that just dropped in you know our time, not the time of the when this will release. But um, yeah, so David Simon, he had uh, he had a problem with how a journalist framed his uh an, an interview in the article so um yeah so or no it was someone yeah this is the crazy thing is it, who is this guy it's a fucking 184 followers right mm. and he, he tags david simon he says uh and calls it out to his attention uh we own this city isn't the wire but it is david simon declaring all cops are bastards and then he snitch tags the article to Simon says, not sure your stance on reading reviews or responding, but any thoughts here? So David Simon's thoughts. Since you asked, all cops are not bastards. And you cannot just back the blue. We can't abolish the police, but neither is police reform possible if we don't first change the mission and dump the entire war on drugs in history's ash heap. Also, useless so- sloganeers suck ass. That's a very good impression. <laughs> Thank you. I, I wasn't planning on doing one, but that was just me winging it. So this was Walking the Wire's official like first interaction with David Simon on we Twitter. We broke the tap. <laughs> so <clears throat> to some, all cops are bastards implies that no decent person becomes a cop. The truth is the system forces complicity and bastardry at a minimum. When decent cops decide to stand up to the bastards, they face intense re- retaliation. See Daphne Durrett's uh, incredible piece, uh, and everyone should read this, USA Today has been putting out banger coverage on what happens to police whistleblowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was just talking with a local activist working on police and jail reform about this show, The Wire. And the biggest lesson for her was that these systems trample and shun individuals who attempt to change them from within. The job will make you a bastard in some way eventually. And if you can't roll with abolish the police, then may we humbly suggest radically reimagine because the shit is well and truly broken. So David Simon's reply was, if you need to rationalize a slogan by what you think it implies rather than what it explicitly says, you need a bit a new and better slogan. 
God, he's such a prick, man. So I re- like, it's like he did, I don't think he read anything but the quote tweet and nothing else I wrote. Right. Didn't didn't engage with anything I said about. And so I replied, I don't make the slogans. Just trying to understand the sentiment behind them. There's some truth to ACAB, albeit caustic and abrasive, which makes it maybe less efficacious at reaching those who back the blue. But I see no truth worth considering at all on the other side of the slogan war. I want to tell you an anecdote. Well, to wrap it up, he said his final reply was, again, there can't be some truth in all cops or bastards. Words have meaning and hyperbole is hyperbole. I don't think it's hyperbole is my fucking point of my tweet. And he didn't engage with it. Look, man, look, look, I, 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 I want to tell you my, my own little like a cab anecdote uh, right. from my experience of the Freddie Gray uprising in 2015. So there was this, you know, what? I'm going to name drop him his first, first, first name. His name was officer Ed and uh, Ed was married to my middle school algebra teacher. And like, Sometimes she would bring him in to address the class. Instead of teaching us math, he would, like, come in and talk about what it was like to be a Baltimore City cop. And he'd, like, show all the boys how to put each other in a chokehold. And he was, like, this beloved officer-friendly character. And and, and we, we all loved him, right? And um, and so two days before a Freddie Gray's funeral, which the main uprising was the day of the man's funeral, April 27th, uh, there were like some little mini prelude riots. There were some like scattered riots downtown on Pratt street uh, near Camden yards on like Pratt and Howard street uh, two days before that and Saturday, April 25th. And I saw a cop out there and and I I think I recognized him and I was like, Ed. And he was like, Whack! And like fucking hit somebody with his baton right there. So yeah, man, like fuck, fuck the police, man. Honestly, every single one of them, even the ones that were were like nice to your middle school class. I was talking about this today with um, a social worker who is reached out to me to help cover a, a really fucked up story that I cannot get into. This podcast be an extra hour long, but. Um, I was I was telling her about uh, <clears throat> yeah the allowances for okay are there are there good people in the system and if you're a cop who committed abuse or witnessed abuse how do you atone and I think and this related specifically to the case I'm working involves and you wanted to I, you wanted me to bring this up because you had something to say about it too so. You can roll on that after. So I, the case that the social worker brought to me, uh, it's a very winding road of tragedies and, and, and shocking turns. One of them is that her defense attorney essentially uh, co- told her that she, had, she had, had to have sex with him if she wanted to get a full defense out of him. And she did it. And at the time, didn't realize like that scenario is rape. Yeah. And so, uh, so we, I was talking about like what's – and this guy's been disbarred. This isn't even an accusation at this point. He was disbarred for that Thank and God stealing from her and other that. clients. But what's what's his atonement? And I would – because I have to reach out to him for comment. And I was thinking like, um, you know, one thing I'd I, – if I actually got him to speak with him and, and if he's trying to defend himself or anything, i say like, look, this is what you got to do. I know this thing goes on a lot. And I would like you to speak to that, that you yeah. were shown this is okay by somebody 
the same way police we're seeing in We Own This City. The training starts out with this cop mentoring this other cop. Like, you know what you can get away with? You can steal the money. And there are prosecutors and defense attorneys fucking all over who do this with women, with with sex workers. Tell them like, you know, well, I'll let, you know, the prosecutor, I'll let you off easier if you, you know, take care of me. Or the defense attorney, like, I'm not going to give you a full and fair defense if you don't have sex with me and that that doesn't just happen to sex workers but they're the most vulnerable exact people. that's yeah yeah but uh, the point that i was kind of that brought this to mind was yeah. that like yeah what do these awful people in these systems need to do police the bastards that have participated or seen bastardry they need to fully and call it out and make it stop you know i'm, I'm not going to get into the whole story i told you earlier but uh first of all that's horrifying and it brings to mind a, a story that was in the news in Baltimore City, um, like in the weeks leading up to the Freddie Gray uprising. Actually, there was a in um, there was a whole scandal in Gilmore Homes, where Freddie Gray was from, where uh, where like the, the housing authority inspectors under Paul Graziano had this whole sex for repairs scandal, where they, they were like basically trading sex for repairs to people's apartments in, in these projects. And Paul Graziano, the, the, the housing commissioner was covering it up for them. And it's like, and like this was happening in like the very housing projects where Freddie Gray lived, like in the days leading up to his murder. And it's just like, gives you a more complete picture of like the social context of like how bad people living conditions are in, you know, in black Baltimore. But anyway, um, maybe this is a good segue to start talking about episode five, The Pager. Yes. And our quote for this episode is a little slow, a little late. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we get into that scene and, and we open uh, getting a real glimpse into Avon's paranoia. Is it paranoia if it's justified? <laughs> no, but it is. No, no, no. It paranoia. Is paranoia. I, don't, I don't think You're paranoia right. yeah, implies yeah. paranoia is, is is a state of right. mind. Yeah, yeah. It's either justified or it's just not. Just because and you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. And in this case, yeah, he's paranoid, but yeah, they're out to get him. Yeah. <clears throat> it still constitutes paranoia, I would say. As <laughs> oh, a paranoid. I'm saying I don't think I'm not saying I'm just saying I don't think there's a negative connotation in that. You know, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, it um, does show where he's he's having to keep one step ahead of the cops. One other thing I find interesting though is the, despite the fact that he is consistently for you know a lot of season one staying one step ahead of the cops, Omar is always a step and a half ahead of him too though. <laughs> yeah, man, you guys remember back in the day when you could take the battery out of your cell phone. Oh, oh man, God. the good old days. <laughs> yeah, that, that was great. Remember cords on phones? Uh, the, the, you know what? It, it just occurred to me. It it sucks to be Avon Barksdale's girlfriend on a lot of levels, and it doesn't have a good track record of history. I wonder, <laughs> you know, if there's women out there who've watched The Wire and who were dating powerful drug dealers like that, and dead and like, oh shit, <laughs> had like a crisis of conscience. <laughs> Yeah, that would be kind of that's that's not 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 a desirable spot to be in. No, but so that's the quote we open on. 
and oh yeah and you were in phil you were talking about like omar's one step ahead of him and that's what the next thing we see is omar doing his planning yeah 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 it's like that's you know, right uh, that's a good scene yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's like madden or something in. you know you got the x's and the o's you're you know uh uh, uh they're they're get uh they're uh it, the, the a little slow a little late i think applies there as well as to the idea that if you lose this game, you may lose your life, your livelihood, your freedom. Uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, what is it? One of the guys has got like headphones on or something, so he doesn't hear. Uh, they're yelling. They're trying to warn him. He's a little slow. He's a little late. He gets got, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's a fantastic way that they show... I mean, they've already shown Omar knows what the fuck he's doing by the way that he robbed his stash house. But then that he just knows how to take a low level deer. Like, I know what he's going to do. He's going to run right down there, you know. Yeah. And then and then after that, we get another great scene where, um, you know, where where you see Omar's plan of action. He and Brandon and company go and walk down the street. And, you know, it's the classic Omar coming scene. Oh, and that's yeah. I think where we first get uh, his his entrance tune, "Farmer in the Dell." Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so I don't good. know all the lyrics to that song or what that song's about. I wouldn't be surprised if it's something fucked up. Like uh, I just recently was a friend of mine. We were a person at a bar, and I were were exchanging. Like, did you know the? Did you ever look at all the lyrics to? Uh, I was throwing out "You Are My Sunshine," which gets dark in the second or third <laughs> verse. It's, it's like. Uh, the, it's a, it's like a psychopath. <laughs> like, uh, it, yeah. It's stalkery. And then uh, Shit, she, threw I didn't me, she threw at me like, did you ever look up the, all the lyrics to Cheers? I'm like, no. <laughs> My friend Magpie used to do a really haunting cover of that song on the, on the accordion. Anyway. The Cheers theme? Or far no, the no, no, no. Uh, you are my sunshine. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I can yeah. see that. I can totally see that. <laughs> but yeah, so Omar comes in with his signature tune whistling in. That's the first time we get some of his uh, his mystique getting built up. And he, yeah, you just see him walking in on his reputation, like how casually he's yeah, holding the shotgun. Yeah. He's not even like, I'm re- like flexing and tense. Yeah, it's, it's way, not you know, this someone season. Someone who's tough but... doesn't like flex that they're tough they're just look at me or it's not in this episode but i also love the way like there's uh uh a, 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 an episode or two from now where it kind of ends towards the end you've got the the ice cream truck is playing and it's playing the farmer in the dell as well which is kind of like you know uh, there, there's a lot of little like yeah. neat bookends uh like that that you see in the show that uh that, that i really enjoy but yeah and then we get the, um, I think one of the scenes that The Wire does great that I love it for is like all the paperwork they have to go through where they get uh, married to the pager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, b- before that even happens, though, we, we see, um, I-, I really like the scene where we see Stringer Bell's management style. Kinda, right. Oh no, yeah, that comes right in. That's right after it on the heels of that, I think. Yeah, or yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. You're right. It's all kind of jumps back and forth. Right? But yeah, Stringer. Yeah, but, oh, but, but that's that's great. Where he's like, people. where he's like got the Angelo, and he's telling him, like, hey man, like, just stop paying your guys for a week, yeah. and then they're gonna See, come to you and beg you for money, 
and and you know, but but the guy that keeps grinding and and doesn't and and you know and doesn't ask for shit, like that's the man I want to hear about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. Honestly, it like shows like, I mean, you, you can you can see so many like analogs to that in in, in every workplace in America. I mean, oh, that, that's Springer and totally, uh, you know, like exercising the knowledge he's been acquiring towards his MBA or whatever. Exactly. That's one of yeah. the, you see where he holds himself above these people. Cause the, the, the line that stuck out to me is where he's like, what you think these guys are going to, what are they going to do? Go to college, get a job. Cause that's mm-hmm. what he's doing. He's straddling both sides, you know, like he's in the legitimate business world and he's getting a higher education. Uh, but he's the businessman who wants to play gangster. Uh, and, but at the same time, he seems to hold himself kind of in a higher, he's, 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 he's built different, you know, he doesn't have respect. I don't think for, for these, you know, these quarter boys. I want to push back a little bit on what you said, though, because I, I think the whole point of Stringer's character is he's not the businessman that wants to play gangster. And this is what we see increasingly in season three with mm-hmm. some of the tensions between him and Avon, where, like, Avon is still cares about, like, the mystique of being, like, like the toughest guy, you know, in the towers or whatever. And is, you know. No, I agree. Be, yeah. You know, and, and whereas, whereas Stringer doesn't care about it, as Stringer's just a capitalist. You know, right. and yeah, there's he's these tensions between he's a like, tempering force, like, I guess you could say. Yeah. 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 He's not telling D to like put, put uh, like some s- swagger out there so that like people know Stringer's rep. It's, like a strategic business decision or whatever. Like, yeah. Like he's more cold and calculating and like mm-hmm. detached from like what people think of him. And that is the, yeah. Like you said, ultimately the rift that comes up in season three. Yeah. Well, what's kind of, no, but, but I, 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 I love his character though, because honestly, like he, like, he kind of shows you, like, I, I think the most successful like <laughs> drug Lords really are just capitalists, you know? Right. And, I mean, oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's it's sort of like a yin yang situation, and where they butt heads, like when it's just one of them, when just you know that's why that's why Stringer couldn't make it on his own. Like Avon fucks up by not list, taking Stringer's advice, and then when there's no Avon to temper uh, Stringer, then uh, you know then he uh, then he gets fucked up. Well, and Stringer's not. Yeah, because Stringer forgets that they're, you know, who he's dealing with, with Marlo. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, or, and he, that he can't buy his way out of what he does in, you know, what we're coming to in the next episode that this one concludes with, which is how Brandon is dealt with. Um, mm. But we're getting ahead of things. So the next thing that comes you, up is... You know, speaking is, of drug dealers just being capitalists, here's, oh, yeah. here's a piece of Baltimore lore for you is... Uh, this is a rumor I, I have heard from multiple drug dealers in my life. I have no proof for it whatsoever. It might just be like an urban legend, but it's a good one. <laughs> is that um, like like m- multiple drug dealers have told me that uh, th- that like the, the ultimate heroin profiteer in Baltimore for a long time was Thomas D'Alessandro the Third, Nancy Pelosi's brother. Mm-hmm. And the former mayor of Baltimore. 
Whoa. son of Thomas D'Alessandro right. Jr., who was also a mayor of Baltimore with, with his own organized crime connections. And should we sprinkle lots of allegedly's on this? Yeah, I, I, I sprinkle <laughs> lots of allegedly's. I mean, the guy's dead now. Pelosi is still alive, but you know, he's he, he's dead. And like, th- this is a rumor that's at least widespread enough that like guys that I was buying drugs from on Greenmount Avenue told me this. So mm, yeah, man. Yeah. Well, you know, I was just talking about that. Um, you know, I got Phil watching um, Snowfall, the uh, oh, FX uh, Hulu yeah. series about uh, the CIA bringing drugs into East LA for, to fund the Contras. And I was talking with uh, Kareem, our, our guest from episode three, about this recently in um, that show. And I said it's fascinating to think about the fact that like the first people who knew the CIA was doing that were on the street. You know, right. and who yeah. the fuck would have believed them? But they mm-hmm. knew it before anybody. Yep. Yeah. But speaking of street people being smart, we come next to one of my favorite things in the show. And I think it's one of the things that it's like, you know, if it, I guess it's another kind of fuck you to David Simon is that it's interesting, not because he's super creative. It's because it's true. And he just happened to, you know, be aware of it is the coded numbers. Right. That was a real thing, right, Phil? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Will you just the, hop over the five? Uh, yeah. 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 Oh, I love that. It's we so have that was one of our first tweets was Phil dug up a, a good like document cloud of the uh original uh, David. Anatomy Simon of covered. a drug empire. Yeah. Yeah. And they have like the photo of the phone and talk about that there. So that's all a real thing um that that actually happened. Well, what's funny, I had actually, you know, I, I used to be kind of enamored with uh, codes and things, you know, simple like Caesar ciphers and stuff like that. Like the mm. simpler, the better. Something that's simple enough, uh, you know, most people aren't going to put in the effort. But I created a, a, a little like, it was a visual sort of like, uh, sort of like hieroglyphs basically. But it's like, you know, you've got uh, a backwards letter L will be A and then put a dot in there and it's B, and then put a line in there, and it's C. And what that is, is it's it's a cell phone, right? You got A, B, C, and it looks like a backwards letter L, right? So then there's one that's like, you know, t- uh, sort of like, you know, two lines up and one at the bottom. That'll be, uh, that'll be D, you know? It's incredibly simple, but if somebody looked at it, they'd be like, what the heck is this crap? You know, unless, until you like look at a cell phone and then go, oh, wait, I see. It's marking which number mm. of what letter in what spot it is, you know. But yeah, no, the the idea of the because what what makes it neat is it is it's such a simple code, really. But at the same time, you know, until you you know take the trouble, uh, it, that what's also interesting here is you know we've already seen that Freeman because th- this this detail was put together, born to fail, uh, but they made some mistakes, uh, Pres. Prez really likes codes and he wants, you know, despite the fact that he's been a fuck up and a victim of nepotism, um, you know, I, I think this is where he realizes he would like to do, uh, you know, uh, solve some crime. Like as soon as it's like a game to him, all of a sudden it's really interesting. Uh, and but Prez, yeah. we, we talked about, we talked about in episode three though, like or, or, or maybe around that, what a mythical character Prez is just in the reality of like, you yeah. know, if you found out that there was a school teacher who 
you know, had his history. Who blinded a 14 year old. Also, was this, yeah, then had this redemption arc of becoming a teacher. And yeah, in reality, people would not be so forgiving. Oh, well, you know, now he's doing good for the community. It'd be like, no, that's a guy who obviously had major, like, abuse of authority and anger issues and probably shouldn't be around kids. He kind of broke this kid's jaw. Like, what the? Yeah. No, it was was, his eye. And this is where I mean we can pause and (sighs) and put some uh you know if you're listening to this and you're someone who just thinks nothing adoringly about David Simon and this whole episode has you being like what I can't I'm having trouble processing but here's the thing with like a character like Prez is like it's the ultimate example of like I do on a fictional narrative level. Wow. I enjoy his character. It's great to see someone go through that. It's a fascinating, you don't see those portrayals Mm -hmm. and I will allow for the complexity of human beings to be like that. But at the same time, it's putting into you this message that like, Oh, this, these cops who do these horrible things, they just didn't find their place. And (laughs) yeah, 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 yeah. He he just wasn't meant to be a police, you know? Yeah. It's another example of the show over humanizing people. You know, it's uh, like this kind of saccharine overhumanism. When, when really, like the, the 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 blunt truth of it was was that this this is a guy that did monstrous things. Yeah, I doubt. I highly doubt David Simon knows a cop that went through this Presbo that, story. Yeah. But yeah, he really. wants. He finds it narratively satisfying. His yes. romantic side wanted to write a character that did that. Him and and Pelicanos or whoever else. You know, or Ed Burns, um, but I, I, you know, I highly doubt that. A, like I said, a, we have a real life prez out there. Because you know, Ed Burns, you mentioned him. He did have the uh, homicide cop turns uh, high school teacher, but like, did he I ever blind a fucking kid? I certainly hope not. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's kind of a big big part of the deal there. That and the nepotism. Uh, or shit you know, like was, was, was that Simon the redemption was that, arc, but yeah, yo, how realistic? Yo, I don't know. We're all y'all. We're all a bit uh, conspiracy pilled on some different things <laughs> that are that we're all willing to defend. But you know, like an interesting conspiracy thing is like uh, Tim Tolkien and I talked about like sources he have who are ex cops who have stories that he knows and is dying to tell, but he can't because it would make the cop look so fucking right. bad. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and, and, and I said, well, this is a situation where, like, because he's going into fictional writing, and may, would I would love to see him adapt the stuff he's done uh-huh. into a series. Uh, but you know, where you write what you know, and does David Simon know something about hmm. <laughs> like a cop that blind? Like, does that did that Ed Burns do that? And he's like, well, I'll write that into a character. <laughs> and, and I. I I think not to backtrack back to this, but I, I think yeah. it, it has to be said that, all, like, <clears throat> even with its like warts and all portrayal of the GTTF scandal, I I suspect that we own this city is still going to be a bit of a whitewash of the truth, right? Because mm-hmm. like I I suspect that the conspiracy went higher than like Sergeant Wayne Jenkins or Allers. Right. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about that before the show about where is it going to ultimately go. It and, already has gone federal. And I'll tell you one you thing. Know? What I'm what I'm ex- what I'm wondering is if David Simon will be finally willing to fully unabashedly criticize failures of the city and maybe the state, 
but like is he gonna make the doj and the feds the fucking hero yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's clearly the purpose of the Nicole Steele character is to make the DOJ the fucking hero. Which you know, is just, and, he's, and he's then, moving up in the world in terms of who he's whitewashing. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's going to be like, like oh, like the DOJ and their consent decree, and and like like in, in spite of like the actions of this heroic, you know, whatever the fuck, I I don't know what a job title is. This this DOJ lawyer, you know, this consent decree person, Nicole Steele. Like, you know, in, in spite of her best efforts, the internal review board is going to feel political pressure to, uh, you know, to rule his, his murder a suicide uh, for political reasons to protect Catherine Pugh. I think that's going to be that seems very characteristic of David Simon to, to mm-hmm. end on something like that and, and, and not like that. Oh, if we keep pulling on this thread, it's going to unravel something like a, something much bigger and we have to put a stop to it. And that's why it was covered up. That, but, that character, you, know. you said she's kind of a, a stand in for Mosby, right? Or Mosby. Well, Mosby I, I don't know. Ma- Marilyn, I, I think so. I mean, she couldn't be Marilyn Mosby because at, at this point in real life, Marilyn Mosby is already state's attorney. Too, but, yeah. but as like this, this sort of like heroic uh, figure of like, a black woman in office standing up to the BPD. I mean, that's very much what, like, like the role that, that Marilyn Mosby tried to play when she indicted those cops. And, uh, and then since then, she's now gone on to convict Keith Davis Jr. four times for a murder that he didn't commit um, purely for political reasons. So I, I think, yeah. I mean, for those who don't know, I mean, like, uh, and I know you've told it to us once before, um, the Keith Davis Jr. story. Do you want to relay that for anyone who's not aware? I mean, this was the first, this was the first black man shot by the cops after the Freddie Gray uprising. Right. Um, and he was, and he, he's, he's just to, you know, basically to, to calm down the inflamed tensions in the city, they, they pinned this shooting of a cab driver on him that he could not possibly have committed. Like if you look just through the chronology of the case, like he would have had to like, you know, sprinted from Pimlico racetrack, like across town, changed mm-hmm. clothes, sprinted back. Like he just, he could not possibly have been the man that, that, that did this, but to justify his shooting by the police they, they've just like, you know, dug in their heels and stuck to their story and continued to try him again and again and again. And he, he's been, in, you know, and then just like rearranged the facts in such a way that, you know, he's been convicted four times. And I now I believe is now appealing his trial for the fifth time. And he's been kind of like a local cause celebra, um, like on the left and like among the, the movement against police brutality in Baltimore. And then anyway, the, the next, uh, the next scene I think we have, you know, like this one really jumps around a lot. We also, um, we can just do the whole arc of Bodie getting, uh, snatched up by Herc and Carver. Oh God. My oh, favorite my line in the whole episode <laughs> is, is like when, when, when they're beating on him and he, and he, and he's like, you're supposed to be the good cop. You dumbass. Yeah. Yeah. They don't even know how to run the routine. And, yeah. Yeah. Bodie knows it better than they do. Yeah. <laughs> so, that yeah. was, that was his uncle, man. 
you know, I'm I'm trying to help you out here. And then he starts like needling at him and he just loses his shit. Yeah. Yeah. So they yeah, and it's hilarious how much like it just the like Keystone <laughs> cops of them both where they they fuck up the interrogation. It can't go anywhere, but you know, they've still snatched him up for evading the boys. They uh, really uh, did uh, think home. that by beating then, up this high school aged child, they were gonna get like multiple drug lords taken down oh yeah. they turn on everybody all we gotta do is knock it out of him you know <laughs> and, and the killer part the killing part of the whole thing they don't even learn their lesson this happens multiple times they're like okay so that was a total f up let's try it again though let's beat up this <laughs> child one more time maybe it'll maybe it'll turn out better hey bro it's the western district way <laughs> it's the western way yeah and i do love how they don't you know that it doesn't work out for them and then they want to go but then they realize they're stuck having to watch him all night and uh, yeah a nice scene where it's like they play pool together and this is another thing where you're just like you know your radar can kind of go off now like well you know how is this does this sort of camaraderie happen between cops and and suspects overnight well, okay, I, I'm going to say I've been to jail before, and there is kind of a weird, like, uh, some people feed we on the cops and robbers or jail kind of thing, and it's yeah, not about- Yeah, but COs aren't cops, man. COs, you can have a pleasant conversation, <laughs> okay. you know? Okay, cops, maybe. Uh, yeah, like- So that's maybe the difference then. Okay, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Oh, corrections <laughs> officers? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, like they're that's a very different job, like you know, like like or people who are bailiffs and shit like that. Because I guess um, it does get boring, right? It's got to get boring. <laughs> you just yeah. sit here with a bunch of folks like pacing around, you know. But honestly, yeah, so then, a very formative experience in my life. That honestly, that that scene when they're kicking his ass kind of gives me flashbacks to. It was like one of the first times I got arrested in Baltimore City. They held me in Eastern District for a, like a long time before they took me to Central Booking, and there was this one guy. He like he was in there on possession charges, but it wasn't even for heroin. It was just for paraphernalia because he had a bunch of gel capsules mm. on him, and he had been picked up. And he was in the holding cell with me, and and he was like, you know, like like sticking his chest out and and, and acting tough and b- being like, "Hey, officer! Hey, officer! You a homosexual? Hey, officer! You a homosexual? You a homosexual?" Just over and over and over again, and the cop comes up to him, and this is the police station. Remember, this is not J- this is not Central Booking yet, so these aren't COs; these are real cops. And the cop comes into our cell, like fucking opens the door, walks in there, and he, and he's like, "Hey, man, like you, like you treat me with respect, I treat you with respect. That's all I'm asking. I'm not talking to you like the cop to prisoner. I'm talking to you man to man." And and this fucking hero was just like, "Hey, officer, between you and me." Man to man, you a homosexual. <laughs> and, 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 like, and like multiple cops came in there and just beat the shit out of this man. It, it was, it, it, it was. Oh my god! But but I was like, oh, oh my god! I, in that moment, I respected him so much, you know. I mean, wow. you know, some people have yeah. anger issues, but if you've got anger issues, there's certain jobs you shouldn't have. Yeah. And, you shouldn't deal with the public, number one. You know, it's like the same thing with customer service, even. If you hate people, don't be in customer service. Work in the warehouse, stock or some shit, you know? Yo. And and police officers, 
Like that's beyond customer service because that's dealing with the public plus authority and what the fuck sovereign immunity. I think they call it, you know, like that's, that's another thing I was bringing up in the interview I did earlier before the show sovereign immunity. What a fucked up prospect. Uh, just the idea of prosecutorial immunity and police officers, judges, and other officials having sovereign immunity, that means you can't take a civil suit against them unless the government says, yeah, yeah, we'll let you sue them for that. The government has to consent to being sued. I wish I would. Wouldn't it be nice to have that kind of immunity? No, I'm sorry. Yeah, I fucked up really bad there, but... I don't think I consent to allowing you to take civil charges again, or, you know, a, a civil suit against me. Boy, that'd be convenient. You could do just whatever you wanted, couldn't you? Yeah, I wish my union was that good. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 You know, <clears throat> one story uh, we were talking about corrections officers, which also relates back to. Um, Right, uh, decent people being in systems. So this this guy is one of the first cold reached out to me because he saw a video, a YouTube report I had done on a shady officer in East Cleveland. Um, and he emailed me and, and he's like, I don't know if you can help me out or not. I never did get in to work his story fully. I need to circle back with him. But um, I can tell you the, the gist of it was that he was a corrections officer, I believe in Lorraine County nearby. And a uh, black man and got a real like sense that, you know, there's a lot of racism around him and a lot of like a bad culture. And he was that he wasn't going to be a team player with how they like to roll. Yeah. And so one day he was standing like in a doorway as like the there was a changeover with like moving prisoners from a cafeteria to another area where they're supposed to close the doors and someone closed the doors slammed it as hard as they could so the doorknob hit him in the back uh-huh. and and he had a severe injury from that and he's like i know they knew i was standing there and i know who did it and then they you know denied him workman's comp and all this stuff and he was just talking you know and like like he, and then his lawyer fucked him over and what turned out he's like i'm pretty sure the lawyer was closer friends with the sheriff for doing a favor for the sheriff than interested in representing me. Anyway, it was just a story that popped in my head that I like get back and work that fucking tragedy. Oh yeah. The, the, the guy that I was talking to today, he's, he's black. Right. So, you know, he'd been, uh, you know, on, on, on the force worked from Sergeant to Lieutenant before, you know, he just couldn't, uh, you know, uh, couldn't stomach it anymore. You know, he was like trying to be in it for the right reasons. And he was trying to fight the system from within, uh but yeah no he was saying like talk about your back like he was saying you know uh there's like a million different ways they can put pressure on somebody who's trying to do the right thing and they will and part of that is like let's say you're out on a call and somebody's gonna shoot you or you've been shot guess what like you know there might be you know they might not that's have your back serp- whoops serpico <laughs> that's pretty sure like yeah the, the narrative of like what happened to serpico ultimately is like he got sent into a dangerous situation and the call mm-hmm. came out that he was the one shot and they weren't too quick to respond or throw backup mm-hmm. yeah at least he's famous now though you know 
Sean Sidger still lives in obscurity. Oh my god, I can't I can't recommend Frank Serpico enough as a fucking uh Twitter follow because he does do great work with a an organization I think he's running called the Lamplighter Project that encourages whistleblowers. But he also he lives on some idyllic property and just posts pictures of him petting skunks or the butterfly <laughs> he found or like, like the thing in his garden or asking like, what do you do? You know what this is? Like this flower. <laughs> That's it's fucking rude, wonderful. It's, Serpico D.E.T. Serpico Detective, I think, is his handle. If you want yeah. to be pedantic like David Simon, like maybe that's the good cop you're talking about, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. No, because he completely yeah. repudiated. No, you can't. Exactly. That he is the model for atonement. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's as soon like, as he found yeah. out he had to be complicit in bastardry, like taking like Sean Suter. He's exactly in Sean Suter's position where it's like, you know, we and Sean Suter seems like the story of Serpico if Serpico didn't survive. Right. The exactly. setup he was put into. But it was, you know, I'm all so, he's done be fair, is, Serpico is a fuck site cooler than Sean Suter. Sean Suter got subpoenaed to testify. Mm-hmm. And then was just in a bad spot and got murdered for it. You know, that's, that's sure. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And I need to, I need to fully reacquaint myself. That's why I don't get into all the details of it because the whole story of it is still like, I want to comb through it and take in all the things, but I, I do know Serpico's story and I can't recommend enough following him in his documentary, a very recent one from 2017. He's in it. Um, you get the full story and even how the movie came to be made and, you know his relationship to it is very interesting i gotta see that yeah but bro like i i, I had co-workers when i worked at ups who, who lived in harlem park who like heard the shots and i think they only found three bullets at the scene there was like a big theatrical publicized thing of them digging in the dirt for the bullets which is weird because if you're in a homicide cop like you don't actually dig in the dirt for the bullets you know it was mm-hmm. set up for the cameras but right. but like a bunch of my coworkers swore they heard six shots and that was the big joke at work for a while was like yeah my man Sean Suter shot himself six times yeah. It's like, yeah, you know, it was, Dude, um, that's three times but, as many as Gary Webb managed to get off in the head. I mean, yeah, you know, <laughs> as talented as Gary Webb was to be able to shoot himself in the head twice, we got to. Who know, was? There was someone else just recently that came up that was talking about um, that. I, they, I was literally verb turned Gary Webb into. A, I'm like, oh, they were Gary Webb, uh, mm-hmm. alleged to have shot himself twice in the head. I'm trying. Ah, oh, shit. So many, I think too many I said, tragedies. I definitely crazy. say that about Sean Suter. He got Gary Webb. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, yeah, one hundred percent. It's obvious. <laughs> anyway, you guys want to talk about McNulty versus IKEA? Yes. So we have three <laughs> rounds of McNulty versus IKEA, and McNulty wins by TKO. <laughs> so good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, 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 I can't, I can't judge him, you know, like, I, 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 I he, he, he might be a pig, but I, I feel a certain kinship with him. <laughs> well, they, because there's, you know, like that is where David Simon is not like whitewashing, like the best cop in the unit in terms of like the narrative of the story, the one who's, you know, with the exception of where he goes and sees five, 
uh, the most honest, like decent doing the job for the right reasons, or, or at least like trying to do the job right and go after bad people uh, is a wreck of a fucking person. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and yeah, and they have, I think we skipped over this scene or it was recently. Yeah. Like where he calls it, you know, like Kima calls him like, did you just call your wife? A cunt? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, and he's like, no. I, and and I, you know when he called her a cunt, getting to the Ikea thing. I said a man less, that less sophisticated phone, than myself might call her that. Yeah. yeah right, <laughs> and yeah. the fact that he called her that he was mad at her because she knew he hadn't bought the goddamn bed yet. Because that true, scene happened exactly. afterwards. Because she yeah. knows he's a drunken fuck up. So of what course color she's are your sheets? Before letting the kids the spend yeah. time. Oh, my my wife won't let me see my kids. Dude, is there a comforter <laughs> or a fitted sheet on the mattress on the floor or not? Just tell me straight. Yeah. You know? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got a bed. I got a bed. What color are the sheets? Uh, uh, yeah. Well, 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 look, as, as a fuck up from Laraville, look, look, canonically, Jimmy McNulty is from Laraville in Northeast Walmart. Uh, I, I also happen to be a drunk fuck up from Laurelville, <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so that, that that's so, sort of why I like him, even if if Dominic West accent fucking sucks. Oh my gosh! Yeah. You know, I never heard it until I saw this little like twenty or thirty minute special. I think it was for the BBC because there's mm-hmm. multiple folks from the UK. Who are in the show? Even the guy who plays Lester Freeman apparently spends half of his time in the UK to the point where his natural speaking voice almost sounds British. But anyway, like, and I saw that little special. What the fuck is with all the Brits on the wire? McNulty, right? That's weird, right? And then I heard McNulty, and I'm like, now I cannot. Like, there's a. I don't know if you guys, the guys from uh, the show Peep Show. Uh, uh, Mitchell and Webb. Oh, yeah, Mitchell yeah, and Mitchell Webb and look, Webb. And they've got this skit where he's like, they're going to do a Southern accent. And he's like, well, we don't do Southern accents, you know, doing my awful Brit. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've, I've practiced it. Well, okay, let's hear it. Boss hog. Boss hog. And he's like, well, so all you can say is boss hog. But like now, every time <laughs> McNulty is talking, I don't hear what he's saying. I hear boss hog. <laughs> yeah, but like that's, I so, never sometimes there's a British in his accent. Sometimes when, when, when his character gets angry, the, the Britishness comes then. back out. Yeah, yeah. Especially, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's like, funny when in, he loses in the, the, the final episode of season one, he's oh. like, He's like confronting. Um, what's the prosecutor's name? The one that goes oh. on to date Daniels. What's her name? Perlman. Oh Rhonda. yeah, 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 yeah. Rhonda he's he's, he's talking to Rhonda Perlman, and 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 he's and and, and he's like, everybody gets paid, and everybody's got a fucking <laughs> future. Yeah, uh, and he's like, I know exactly future. what you're talking about. And it's like you, you sound know. so fucking British, you limey <laughs> fuck. You know? like, come on, guys, cut. It's, it's New England, places. not old England. <laughs> Do it again. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, that's. I mean, that's pretty much like. McNulty, besides him and Kima kind of checking in on Omar, I mean, um, they, yeah, I mean, they're, and then they're, they're keeping an eye on Orlando's later, but they're mostly McNulty, I think, is there with his comic relief and he made his bed at the end. It's great. And he <laughs> had to lie in it. Uh, but there's another scene that's really great. There's, there's, there's two more I'm 
really uh, kind of like excited to talk a lot in this episode as I'm looking at my list. But mm. D's dessert. And D goes to dinner. With oh, oh and D'Angelo's in the fancy restaurant. Yeah. And he's yeah. Like, do you think they know what I do for a living? That's a great scene. Yeah, and I'm not even about it. Like, like do you know what all these rich motherfuckers do? Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, like I, you know, I was with a friend. He invites me. I'm I'm sitting at the bar of the Marco Polo, and like you know, he buys me a drink, and like I forgot what like I was holding the glass wrong or something, and the guy's you know picking fun at me. He's like, oh, you know, we can tell you were raised in a barn, but like I know that feeling that like. I do mm-hmm. not belong here. Everyone's looking at me. I am breathing wrong because like, if you're not born into a certain type of world, like you don't acquire it. Like, I don't know. Maybe you can, you, I mean, you know what I, it makes I'm, me I'm actually, I had a sudden flashback to a time. like upper class sensibilities. I will never have that, you know? So like, you know, you can take, you know, somebody can invite me to the nicest restaurant and I'm going to constantly feel like somebody's staring at me because I just don't belong there. That's, you know. I have, uh, for some reason, a flashback to, I was, I think in New York, and I went or some, you know, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was when I was living in New York and I went to like, I just heard about like a friend told me they were going to a political fundraiser. Maybe it was for like, you know, Bernie Sanders or some other cause. And it was in like a high a floor apartment down in the financial <laughs> district. And yeah, yeah and got, I, I don't even know how I was allowed in there without paying like X hundred dollars for it. But <laughs> I just like the conversations I engaged with, you know, we were kind of talking about how people that are in the system, they're very like pyramid schemed Mm -hmm. and the way they talk about politics versus like a scrappy person like me walking into that world. I I think that's uh, for some reason that D's mindset right there. I feel close to that. When I think of that moment. That that said one day before I die on my bucket list is uh, I want to have lunch at Musso and Frank's with someone so that I can have a conversation that way, because the whole point of doing that is so that one day you can name drop. Well, you know, I was having lunch with so-and-so at Musso and Frank's <laughs> that we were talking about because apparently like that makes you somebody. Once you've had dinner at Musso and Frank's and had a conversation, you can talk about that until you die. <laughs> But D, uh, he's he's thinking about like it's funny how like you know Stringer is already in that mindset like we were talking about like he sees a I'm I'm gonna le- legitimate businessman this shit. Um, Whereas D'Angelo thinking, feels and he's all in, being D, in the and he's Stringer Stringer is like and that's the interaction that's the last time we saw D is like you know Stringer like putting the screws to him like this is how you need to do it. Um, yeah. Also, we skipped over the scene of that I labeled pit politics in my notes, which is about when Bodie uh, whips the, the the bottle at Wallace and he's kind of talking about like, you know, we need to tighten yeah. up and be harder and things like that. And D's kind of seeing that from underneath him and then Stringer from above him. Like, yeah, you got to lean hard on your crew, um, mm-hmm. treat them, you know, mistreat them basically in order to get them to do what you want. And Stringer's all in and has no worries about what d worries about in the scene when he says you know like i'm trying i'm here pretending i'm the successful person who can just rub elbows with decent people but some shit just stays with you as hard as you try you can't go and 
anywhere. You know, he's already having his early mm-hmm. like uh, later on when he's in prison and later seasons, you know, and he's taken in the great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so, sort of like the dramatic irony of it, I guess, is that like, you know, w- w- we're seeing how like D feels out of place in this like bougie environment. Um, but also, he's also kind of out of we're place. Or does, yeah, does he only feel out of place in it because yeah. he's there as a criminal? Like it's because he is in a the you know in the drug trade, is, right? Does he but but he, like- he's also not built for the drug trade because exactly, he, he, he's, yeah. he's too much of like a morally upstanding guy. Where like he he, he can't just sit there and let Bodhi you know bully uh, Wallace. You know he, he's going to intervene because he's just too too decent of a guy to let it happen. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's he's got scene. too much heart to be yeah. the ruthless businessman that Stringer is. And like I said, that's why Stringer has none of these moral quandaries as, as he starts to move into more quote, quote, decent circles of power and, and whatever. Right. But, and I, I so, think uh, as you guys said in the previous episode, he's, he's, he's already been demoted to going to the pit where he's basically babysitting. Yeah. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. And Avon, uh, his story continues in the episode with um, the scene that brings us back. Well, we have a a scene where he's just like collecting money. That's kind of like, you know, and then we see him walk out with some. But more importantly, oh, you know, before we get to the Avon scene, because I want to talk a lot about Avon, we can just kind of bunch it all together. You know, what's the scene I wanted to talk about that's that's hard um, is we get. Uh, Bubbles going to visit Johnny in rehab, oh, right. or in, in in the hospital in rehab. That's another Bubbles is so like Bubbles like is is been carrying like I've been doing this stuff to get revenge for you, mm-hmm. and we're you know we're gonna take him down. And Johnny's just like, man, I can't wait to get out of the game or get back in the game. And why yeah. are you doing that? Why would you be a snitch? And yeah, doesn't isn't yeah. isn't like th- you're doing that for me? That's awesome. <laughs> it's all really like. A gut punch. Yeah. Also, like, you know, earlier we hear, you know, Bodie and Poot talking about the bug, about AIDS, right? And then, uh, you know, when when Bubbles goes to see Johnny, you know, finds out, oh, crap. Yeah, uh, that, that scene where he's like, oh, what are these? He's got a bottle of pills. And it's like, no, those are not those are not the fun kind of pills. <laughs> That's, yeah. And, it, 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 and it's chilling you know, as for me as the viewer and you see it and, and also by proxy of just taking in Bubbles reaction that Johnny is doesn't even ha- harbor, it seems, resentment or, um, you know, just when 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 Bubbles is confronted with the fact that like, oh, well, you know, you're getting better and then it's still got its hooks in him. He still oh, wants to get way, right back in it. You guys realize Johnny is one of the kids from the movie Kids which I have watched once, and it was so... I've just never actually epic. seen that. Oh, God. It's worth watching once, but it is so depressing and just... That's what like, I heard oh, and bits God. of it I've seen. Like, rough. you know, and then you'll want to take a shower afterwards, too. I mean, just like... Uh, and that the AIDS also comes up in that, too, except it's like literal kids, you know? And it's just so awful. You know, exploitation and, uh, you know, death. Oh, it's just terrible. John, Johnny is such a Johnny's such a tragic character where his whole story goes because he really is ride or die. And he yeah, that's where he yeah. goes. He rides till he dies. 
You know, uh, the when Herc and Carve go off on their dumb shenanigans, uh, that was one of the things I was thinking. I was like, this is about as smart as like Johnny's idea to like go steal copper. You know, like really, how, like on an intellectual level, is there no? Much but Johnny's idea to steal copper worked. Exactly. There's the difference. Exactly. They were both really dumb. His ideas. fake money idea, which I don't know. If that was Bubbles' idea. Johnny just. Uh, Man. was the, had the bad luck of the money getting looked at but yeah but but it um, but they're at least as ill-conceived mm. like herc and carver's plans are at least as ill-conceived as that of literal you know just uh junkies thinking oh we'll, we'll pass some fake bills we'll steal some copper difference being yeah at least, at least the junkies are occasionally effective there's a nice symmetry there you know between <laughs> just like everybody being a fucking idiot Oh, yeah. Yo, yeah, speaking of yeah. junkies, I love the scene where McNulty is copying a telephone number or something, and then one of one of the- oh no, I have that down. I have that down <laughs> in my notes as a tale of two cops because you have Prez <laughs> doing real work, and then Drunky McDrunk yeah. comes staggering by, and he's like, "This fucking detail, this fucking detail, yeah, it's so good." Way, yeah. Wait, what, what, what is he doing? It, it's about the jumping the five code, right? It's like he, he's he's photocopying yeah, yeah. a physical phone. He's got he's it on the phone. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this is the thing: if you are worried about McNulty catching you drinking on the job. Just, just get some help, okay? Because, like, you are beyond serious alcoholic. You really need, like, a program is yes. not going to work. You need to sign into rehab. Once McNulty needs a program, okay? But if you are worried about McNulty seeing you drinking, it's too late for the program. You need to sign yourself in somewhere ASAP. I think my favorite oh, you know, arc on oh, the show ahead. is when he's like almost doing better in season four and he's like dating the Port Authority cop oh, and he's yeah, like yeah. not drinking. And then and then it's only a prelude to season five where he starts drinking again and invents the season. I think I talked about that with it's Phil so or somebody, I don't know, in an episode, but I talked about how I kind of hated that they took that away from McNulty, his, you know, that he got straight. Because, mm. you know, like I, but I, I, you know, my father was an alcoholic who had many, many bottoms, but he got clean and he, he did find a person and he's good, but yeah, they just totally stripped that from, that's why I'm like, I, I kind of wish season five hadn't had like half of it happened. I want it half of season five and none of it is the McNulty fake killer shit. I mean, I, I think season five is a little narcissistic on the, the writer's parts where, where it's like, oh, let, let me write about what working for the Baltimore Sun is like, you know, <laughs> but, 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 but it's like, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you what though, well, you know what it does? Mm-hmm. It does accurately show that David Simon tells on himself is the kind of journalism that is, it, I'm not saying there's no value in it, but at the same time, it's the kind of journalism that most of the people I see who are in careers in it and have gone through established paths to journalism, they pay all the attention to what powerful people are doing and they're not accessible to like my niche that is happening is just finding individually wronged people. And there's their, their micro stories show systemic cracks. Exactly. But, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I like that. I, I, I don't know what the uh, – I forget what the David Simon surrogate character is in that, you know, the bald guy with the goatee. But I, I, I thought he, he, he did a good job. Yeah, well, and, I, like and I will say the value – there is a lot of value talking about – aspect. You know. <laughs> talking about um, Templeton it will be a lot of value in season five. But we are – on season, we are on episode five of season one. Let's fuck. Fuck, I'm it sorry. Out. I'm we sorry. Are, we are now. still Let's get halfway. This. We are like halfway through okay. an episode. So we, we, are, and uh, we have crossed the hour 18 mark, and I love it. Resort, but I, wanna, I know. It's, it looks like we're still on a Hurricane Carver on babysitting duty when they're playing well, no, pool with Bodie, right? No, no. So, no, I mean, we've jumped around a bit, but where I wanted to pick up is, um, so we did Johnny is all in the game. And then it, we skipped the McNulty scene, which is where St. Landsman swoops in to tell Jimmy he's worked out a deal to help him. Oh, yeah. This, this is what ultimately comes back to bite him in the ass and put them on the boat, right? Uh, yeah. 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 Oh, man. Yeah. And, and yeah. So he like has his like sweet talk and then he goes to tell Jimmy how it worked out. It's like, oh, I got you this. And it's like, thanks. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, it's so good. And then uh, next is uh, after yeah after that scene we have some more rumblings in the pit. Uh, we have D and and Poot have a quick scene and Wallace, um, and that's where you know that that's where Stringer's plan is coming into action where people are feeling the pressure like coming to D for for money and D's got to be like nope. Um, and then we have the scene and- with Tawanda. To one, and this gets back to like we were saying, it's like it's bad to be the girlfriend of Avon Barksdale. Shout out to my actual friend Tawanda, Tawanda Jones. Mad respect, Tyron West sister. But anyway, back to back to these friends, Tawanda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so like uh, that scene kind of just moves the plot forward on where we're gonna be going, like that, and. It actually segues perfectly in terms of like the structure of the episode. We then come to Orlando's and you have some interesting lore about Orlando's, Isaac. Well, I mean, Orlando's... The building it's shot at, right? The building it's shot at is on what's called the block, which is where all the strip clubs are in Baltimore. And there's a lot of like sex work that occurs there. Um, It's like... It's like famously the only strip clubs in town where... Like sex work actually happens, and you you can go and purchase sex there, and it's also literally adjacent to the Baltimore Police Department headquarters. It's right there. It's it's like it's two blocks away from City Hall, and it's literally right next to the police station. And it's like, and just since time immemorial has been allowed to operate like that. There's a really good book. Uh, by Baltimore's own Joan Jacobson called Eyes of Justice, which was like co-written with a former Baltimore city cop who worked undercover on the block. And it's, it's a fascinating read. I, I will make sure and link that in the description. Oh, I, I really recommend it. it. It's, it's great. But like, yeah, I mean, it, it's just such a great like synecdoche or like such a great microcosm of what, fucking just like Baltimore city politics is with, with like, you know, you have like, like one block North on holiday street, you've got war Memorial Plaza and city hall and the courthouse. And like, you go a block south there on like Baltimore and gay street. And you have like all these like glorified brothels 
you know, that, that, that are masquerading as strip clubs. It's like, yeah, like frequented by all the cops who, who work next door. Um, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but you should read Joan Jacobson's book, Eyes of Justice. Yeah. And, um, Does anybody else feel like that line, you know, Orlando says, I'd rather run a laundromat. Like, am I the only one that caught like, oh, that's another cash-based huh. business. Cash-based business is great for laundry. In The Wire and The Sopranos, the cash-based money laundering business are strip clubs primarily, right? But no, yes. I mean, like, you know, Better Call Saul, it's like, what, a spa? Or it'd be great. No, spa. yeah, it'd be great if, if Orlando had said, like, I'd rather run a car wash and we have yeah. some Breaking Bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Any kind of, whether it's coin-operated or whatever, cash-based business, mm-hmm. like, I, I wonder if that was, like, kind of a, a, a kind of a sly nod there because, yeah, or laundromat, said it, like, ironically, could be good for laundering. Not I'm, I'm definitely us. taking notes for when I start my criminal empire. Sure. <laughs> or if you uh, if you set this in 2022, Orlando would have said, "Man, I'd rather be Bitcoin mining." <laughs> ah, oh man, no, seriously. Apparently, yeah, it's been it's been kind of rough on the crypto circuit the past week or so. Yeah, <laughs> I've been waiting for dude the tether rug pull. I'm just give me 30 seconds and I'm done. We don't have to. Yeah. The tether rug pull. I've, I saw this coming, y'all. If anybody had asked me, of course, tether was a big like laundering scheme, and like, no, that. Anyways, so yeah, back to where we were talking. But yeah. back to where we were at in the story. This is this is also the scene where D'Angelo gets passed over for stink, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're still on the <clears throat> clock, as Orlando puts it. Yeah. And the and more importantly, where Orlando and D start getting ideas on like maybe we could do a little side yeah, thing. Yeah, that'll yeah. be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about ill-conceived ideas, yeah. You know, maybe this would have been alleviated if Stringer really did get formal and he made all of his, uh, you know, workers sign non-compete clauses so they know. No freelancing. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the the NDA and here's your non-compete clause. You're not Uh allowed to participate (laughs) in any other illegal businesses. That, uh, yeah. <laughs> but man, but then later after this scene, we get Prez cracking the code and realizing, oh, you just jump over the five mm-hmm. on the phone, right? Yeah. And I believe that was the code. That's the actual code from the story that they, they elaborate on. And yeah, yeah. And it goes again to like the, like the, the brilliant sophistication Avon's and that ties back to like, it's kind of cool. It comes up in this episode where it, we open with Avon's paranoia and the code is, uh, you know, who came up with that? Was that Avon? Do they yeah. have like, you know, like a, a nerd on staff that yeah. we've never seen? Yeah. But it, 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 right. it's interesting to me how like, uh, you know, the, the, the technology in the wire was already out of date, even when the show was released in 2002. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. l- l- like it was because it, it's all based on David Simon's actual experience as a police writer in the eighties and maybe nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the next scene we get is, uh, we get Omar and Brandon are preparing for a score and, that's where you see you really see some of the heart of their relationship you see another side of omar um and again just like you know this being the first show kind of breaking ground with that kind of character at all 
Yeah. 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 Uh, and even though, you know, uh, the Omar character is another composite, uh, and he's based on two different, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Donnie Roberts, and then there was also a, a gay stick-up man in, in, in Baltimore. So that's another case where, you know. Uh, D- Donnie Andrews. Called. There you go. Do- Donnie, Donnie Andrews, Andrews you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, little yeah. Donnie Andrews, I guess he was called or whatever. But yeah, mm-hmm. another one of those cases where it may have been a bold move at the time in the early 2000s, but it was also like this wasn't just coming out of nowhere. This is based on, you know, like in this case, as in many others, it's a composite of of mm-hmm. real people with some fictional aspects. But yeah, no, that was that was absolutely like, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, somewhat based on reality. And I think beyond just, you know, the fact that, I mean, it's it's groundbreaking to have such a, you know, like menacing character be a homosexual. But even just on a level below that, I think it was it's really uncommon to see an a not like, you know, at that point, a, a homosexual portrayed that, that isn't effeminate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he. No, it's Brandon true. He's both. a fucking badass. He's like this. Well, this... well he and Brandon both. Not to say that you can't be an effeminate badass, dude. but he's just like there's no affectations that like are were almost always baked into every homosexual portrayal on TV right, that yeah. feed into the stereotype that like oh you can always tell a gay guy because he talks like this, sweetie. Yeah, no, it's it, it was it was a real like leap forward in terms of just the portrayals of queer masculinity on TV for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rest in peace, Michael Williams, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then, so to close out Avon for this episode, we get his visit to the nursing home his uncle is at, where, mm-hmm. you know, that's it's just kind of landing on me now thinking of when they're first walking through there and Dee's reaction to it is like, oh my God, why is he in this shitty place? Right. Yeah. And the fact that um, Avon tells him, even though I am the richest motherfucker you know, I can't flash that cash to help people yeah. like and D yeah, just like yeah. so is, is like this, yeah. talking about how I feel uncomfortable going to a nice restaurant. And then he's seeing like the limits of, oh, even if I get all this capital, this money, look where how much can I actually use yeah, it, sure to, it to help people from. exactly on top of that, looking at him. And that's where the life goes. Live the yeah. life, leave the life. Yeah, yeah, a little that, slow, a little late. You know, I I work in a nursing home now, and that scene kind of, uh, yeah, kind of stuck with me because I I have residents with you know similar uh, brain damage to that guy, but it's it, it's really interesting to, to show you know it it, it it kind of like you see D'Angelo and Avon's heart a little bit, but at the same time, like they're also using. Like, like his brother's situation as like a warning to D, you know, it's, it's a very right. functional scene too. Because mm-hmm. they're like, this is what happens if you get a little slow, a little sloppy, you know? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't think they ever actually say explicitly that he was shot, do they? But it's it's just implied. Well, you know, they show a wound on his head. That's right. He did yeah. a temple, I believe. And if yeah. he wasn't shot, you know, like in just the right way, you know, then, yeah, you can survive that, but not be, you totally. know, living any kind of life. Yeah, it's an um, extremely poignant scene. Yeah. But especially the bit like what gets me is where he's like, you know, like he scares you, don't he? 
And then D is like, he doesn't want to come out and say it. That's rude. That's wrong. It's inappropriate. And then Avon's like, okay, fine. Uh, no, you know, he scares me. I don't like to see this. I don't like to be here, you know? Yeah. Does he scare you? He scares me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. And then we close out um, Omar yet again, like we were saying, like Strange Omar stays ahead him. of Avon. And then we he, we see he's completely ahead of McNulty and Kima. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. finally, let's oh, just yeah, talk. Yeah, I know yeah. you're watching me. And even Nose Bubbles is the one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he just drops that. He's, he's like bubbles yeah. being around there, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, bird is. Yeah, that's bird. Just so working, good. Man. Yeah. Uh huh. Man, when I was a kid, I used to try to hold my breath every time we would drive past that cemetery the whole time. Hmm. <laughs> that long? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's a, it's a long ass place. It's like four city blocks, man. But. No, I, I I I love that scene where, you know, they come out with their guns drawn, and Omar is like, "If you were going to use that, you would have already." And they put them away. Ah, yeah. oh, it's fucking great. Yeah, you get the full you get the full coolness of Omar, but then we, you know, this episode ends with the the dark foreshadowing of what when Wallace and Poot spot yeah. Brandon. And then there's a like it's just a masterful sequence done of the calls bouncing back and forth across everybody and the numbers being caught. Yeah, right. Um, this is man. this is a big. This is where the dominoes start, really. Like as far as like, I mean, you know, the conditions were already set up, but that was the dominoes put in place. I'd say this is the first domino falling when it comes to like what will lead to Avon's death. You know, where's Wallace? Mm-hmm. You know, you just have like, this sense of impending it's, it's doom the, there. Yeah, like there yeah, was the blow, already the, basically the blowback. Yeah, there was already yeah. a seed of conscience, but this is where, like, you know, it's going to affect Wallace. Like, uh, you know, what did they think was going to happen though? But he's just a kid, man. He, you know, that's the thing. When you're a kid, you don't think ahead. Sometimes that's literally, you know, the it's that's just how it goes. Yeah. And, and how, you know, Wallace is, you know, it's, and, and you know what we're seeing too in this whole sequence in this scene is Stringer's fucking plan working. Is that Wallace and Poot are the ones that are like, yeah, Wallace has a goddamn, you know, brood of of street kids he's he's caretaker uh, for they he's, come to ask they, for money and therefore they they're too soft. well exactly yeah they, they, so they're they're all, they're feeling that pressure that stringer wanted them to feel and they were jumped at the chance to do something big that they knew oh we get to tip them off and yeah. blinded by their their immediate material needs yeah. and 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 their loyalties and not realizing what the consequences of their actions were and wallace yeah seeing that we will see where that goes and the uh you know we skipped that's where the episode ends but there's a scene we skipped that i think is a good one to close out with um it's freeman squares up with daniels and just kind of tells him like look I know I you're climbing the, dance, the career but ladder, but this is going to be, you know, I see where this is going. And he's like, we said, 
if you are a cop that wants to do the job well and is decent or whatever and about making big cases that go after powerful people you he knows what happens to you and he's trying to give daniels he's like are you all in on this shit do you realize what where this is gonna go we keep pushing we're gonna get the money yeah no it's an interesting episode because like a lot of the germinals in everything else that'll come out of the story you, you you see here you know like yeah absolutely yeah, there's a lot of this is this is one where we have a lot of um, pins being set up, um, not so many being knocked down, uh, and and the next one, like we said, is going to be seismic. And uh, you know, I think we we've rounded out everything for this episode. And I, I definitely I'm excited to plug our next one. Uh, our guest is really excited to be on. His name is Jason Goodrick. He is uh, one of the commission members of the Cleveland Police uh, Oversight Committee, and I'm helping produce their podcast that is going to go over the deep, real history of Cleveland uh, and police abuse and the history of policing. Uh, And the first episode's a real banger with like a grizzled 70-year-old Cleveland journalist who was here for the Howe riots and Glenville shootings and the formation of our Cleveland Police Patrolmen's Association, the union that is just god damn uh and uh and and, and uh gail gaddison who is a longtime teacher in the educational system here who focuses on the racism the racist history of cleveland policing so uh he busy i think i told you the last time i was in your town was the brillo verdict right no yeah yeah it was my last time in cleveland i wasn't here for that uh cleveland's a wild place man Reminds me I, I mean, I, I was drawn to this show is because I feel like when I think this is true of like all these bad police department, like this stuff is like they all has its own little like spices and flavors. But there's so mm-hmm. much like this is happening in Baltimore. It's happening in every major city. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about with. Like I said, Mr. Clark, Samuel Clark is Newark was Newark, New Jersey Police Department. And he agreed with me like I was asking, like is New Jersey uniquely corrupt or is it just that there's different flavors of corrupt? He's like, no, no, it's going on everywhere. It's just like, like, you know, the, the idea of like different flavors, like a different spin on corruption. Like everybody's got their own way. They do their dirt, but it's dirty all over. It's and, and, and stuff like prosecutorial immunity and sovereign immunity. Yeah, that absolutely. That's something he was saying too. Like it's the way the system is set up, and until until people are informed and we push for external investigations, and even then you've got to count on then you've got to count on the the, the DOJ and the feds uh, not having corrupt individuals, which just uh, sadly is not the case. There are some decent feds. I talked to a couple recently. You know, I, I, you know, there, there are FBI agents who spent their careers chasing after corrupt politicians and white collar criminals, and I love that. But oh, one of like, one of my most yeah, like uh, interesting interviews was working on <clears throat> the Tony Viola story of wrongful prosecution by this guy mm-hmm. Dan Casares, and one of Tony Viola's like strongest advocates is his private investigator who's a 80 year old retired FBI. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and, got, and yeah. he is and, like, um... <laughs> it's amazing talking to him 
And how many red stairs did that guy live through? What? How many red scares did that guy live through at his job? <laughs> <laughs> but it was amazing talking to him and just being, you know, saying like, "Well, I think things are this bad." And he's like, "You know, I didn't think that before, but yeah, that's you know, just a sober your grandpa coming around yeah. and be like, and and I, you know, you guys both got to have a hot take." And I think it's my turn. I'm going to have a real hot take. I think that maybe the reason we see these problems in all these cities is it's systemic. Yeah, I'm beginning to think you're right. You know, like look, I'm, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to agree to disagree but, with you guys. I, I believe in Baltimore exceptionalism. <laughs> Baltimore is the greatest city in the world and fuck everywhere else, in my opinion. You know, all the other cities might have, you know, similar mundane pedestrian problems because, you know, they're merely acting out their roles as prescribed by late capitalism. But Baltimore is just different. All right, <laughs> my opinion. You, you, know, you, you can tell it's the greatest city in America because it says so on the bus benches. Then you walk through the garden. You gotta watch your back. Well, I beg your pardon. Walk a straight and narrow track. If you walk with He's gonna save your soul You gotta keep the devil away Awesome.